Lessons from Two Widows Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of Sunday, November 7th, 2021 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. Deacon Neville Jones looks at the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the story of the widow who put just two small coins in the temple treasury. Jesus uses both of these women to teach his disciples some unexpected and important truths about the character of God. Their circumstances were very different, but they both showed that God is faithful like no other. Psalm 146 picks up this theme to show that we too can trust him in any and all situations. We're going to open up the pages of scripture that are appointed to us for this Sunday the 24th Sunday after the Pentecost. And uh, this is a gift from God. His word is a gift and it's an act of worship to read it, to inwardly digest it, and to study it. So let's open our ears and our hearts to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. God's word to God's people. The first reading is from the first book of Kings, the 17th chapter, beginning at the 8th verse. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, Elijah called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have, and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the book of Psalms. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, 
whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel portion is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Please stand. It's a tradition to stand when a king is teaching. Brothers and sisters, the good news according to Mark. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogues and at the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be severely will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, she put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Yeah, let's bow our heads in prayer before we start. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we may see wonderful things out of your word. And may the thoughts of my heart, the thought of all our hearts and the thought, words of my mouth be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The title I've come up with for this sermon is Lessons from Two Widows. So we will be looking at both of these stories about widows, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. And in particular, how Jesus used them for teaching his disciples. And the appointed psalm picks up on a theme that arises from these stories, so I'll include that later on as well. Now our Old Testament reading, 1 Kings 17, contains the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. And the start of this chapter is where Elijah makes his dramatic appearance onto the pages of history. He confronts Abraham, the king of Israel, 
with these words. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I really like the idiom that Elijah uses there in this translation. He is standing in front of the king of Israel and he says, the God of Israel before whom I stand. So we know where Elijah stands. And we also know where Ahab stands, which is under the watchful eye of the Lord. The Lord is on his case and it's going to be rather uncomfortable for him because this is the start of the story that ends with the showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for the prophets of Baal. The Lord then instructs Elijah to disappear and hide by the book Cherith, east of the Jordan, where he is fed by ravens. And when the stream dries up because of the drought, the Lord tells him to go to Zarephath near the city of Sidon. The distance from where he was in Gilead, east of the Jordan, to Zarephath on the Mediterranean, between the city of Tyre and Sidon, that was about 150 kilometers. That could easily take a week to walk on foot, especially if you were taking the scenic route to avoid the highways, which I'm sure Elijah did because he was a wanted man, at least while he was traveling through Israel. Now Elijah arrives at the city gates and sees a widow there gathering sticks. Understandably, he's feeling thirsty and he asks her for a drink. This request for a drink of water was expected and it was customary hospitality to provide water to travelers. So nothing unusual so far and the widow heads off to get it. But as she's going, Elijah calls after her and asks for something to eat as well. Now that was a problem. The drought from the Lord had extended to Phoenicia. This itself was a poke in the eye for Baal, who was worshipped firstly as the storm god, not just the rain god, he was the storm god. There are carvings of him from antiquity, of him holding an enormous great lightning bolt, the, worshipped as the god of the storm, and secondly, worshipped as the god of fertility. That's the fertility of people, for animals, for your crops, everything. So when there's no rain and there's a shortage of water, that's bad news for Baal. This humbling of Baal may not be obvious for us, but I'm sure it was readily understood by the locals at the time. Now, it would appear that the main impact of the drought was the failure of the food crops. 
Groundwater from wells was still available, but food was getting scarce. So the widow's response was, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. It's interesting that she was able to recognize that he was not only an Israelite, but also a true follower of the Lord. Maybe it was something to do with his clothing or his appearance, or perhaps the Lord stepped in and helped her to know this. It's only later on that we read that Elijah was easily recognizable because he wore a garment of hair and a a leather belt around his waist. Then Elijah decrees the miracle that the flour and oil should never run out. And the widow believed that promise because she went and did what Elijah had asked. Now, when I was thinking about this story, I appreciated for the first time the low-key nature of this miracle. As, let's suppose, months have gone by and there's a conversation between the widow and her neighbor in Zarephath. And the neighbor says, how are you managing? You seem so relaxed. Widow, just the same, still surviving on next to nothing. But we have a man of God staying with us. So who knows what could happen? You, it's not as if the king of Sidon's Amazon food order had just made a mistake and been delivered to her house. There was no stash of food in her house. Her household was just surviving on next to nothing by the power and the providence of God. Maybe that thought will be an encouragement to some of you here. Now let's turn to see how Jesus uses this story to teach his disciples. Now, there are two occasions where Jesus refers to it. One fairly obvious and the other one not so. The obvious one is when Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth, explaining that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And he uses this story and is an example of how God can cross borders and favor the foreigner. And Jesus says this, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Jesus also talked about Naaman the leper from Syria, who was healed. But you probably remember, this sermon did not go down very well. Jesus was thrown out of the synagogue and he nearly got thrown off a cliff. But that's not the occasion that I have in mind. The more obscure occasion is the one in Matthew chapter 10. The context in this chapter is that Jesus is preparing his 12 disciples to go on their first mission trip to announce the kingdom of heaven 
and to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. And the chapter ends, chapter 10 of of Matthew, ends like this on the subject of rewards. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. Now, it's not so obvious because Jesus is just hinting at the story of Elijah and the widow. And when he says, the one who receives the prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Actually, Jesus often hinted or alluded at scriptures. And you know, most of his hearers just got it because they'd grown up memorizing the scriptures and heard it read week by week in the synagogue. And after all, it was the only book in town. The second reference, the one about receiving the righteous person, is even less obvious. This one is referring to Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, who received the two spies sent out by Joshua. She hid them, misdirected those who were looking for them, and told the spies how to get back safely to the Israelite camp. She knew for sure that God was with them and that they would conquer Jericho and inherit the land. So in return for the protection she provided for the spies, they, in response, came to an agreement that they would protect her and the lives of the whole family, and they made a plan. So the reward that the widow of Zarephath received was the reward that Elijah received, which was food during the famine. No small thing. And the reward that Rahab received was the reward of the righteous. In other words, the people of Israel. They were righteous because God was bringing them into the inheritance they had promised to their forefathers. So the reward of the righteous was to live in the land. And that's what Rahab shared with. No one else apart from her family survived the destruction of Jericho. But in these Bible stories, Jesus is doing much more than providing evidence that God knows how to look after those whom he commissions and sends out. Of course he can do that. But I think that Jesus handpicked these two stories because of what they revealed about his father. He liked to do that kind of thing. The two people highlighted in these stories were firstly foreigners. They were women, and moreover, they were right at the bottom of the social heap. One was a widow, 
and the other was a prostitute. These people, humanly speaking, were of absolutely no standing and no consequence at all. So, God can not only look after his own, but he can also surprise us with those he is able to use and the amazing reach of his grace. Amen. So now let's turn to the gospel story about the other widow that we read about. If you recall, the first few verses are about the teachers of the law, and some translations refer to them as scribes. In general, they oppose Jesus, though not all of them, and Mark chapter 12 has a story of one who was interested in Jesus. But what stands out in the Gospels is that along with the elders and the chief priests, they sought to have Jesus put to death. But these scribes, these teachers of the law, they were spread throughout the land. There's pretty well one in every town and village because they were there to teach the law and to interpret it and tell them the way to live. And the busiest place in any town or village was the marketplace. So they wore long robes in order to be recognized and to receive greetings and no doubt flattery. And because they handled contracts and legal issues, they would often act as executors for the estate of widows. They could then benefit financially by abusing that position of trust. And Jesus puts it this way, they devoured widows' houses and just for a show made lengthy prayers. These first few verses in that passage serve to set up a contrast between how widows were treated by the justice system of the time compared with Jesus' teaching about this poor widow and her offering. We read that Jesus came in to, to a section of the temple proper, which was called the treasury. It was also called the court of the women. And we read that he sat down and observed the people giving offerings. Presumably he was sitting in the shade in the colonnade around. It was called the treasury because there were 13 chests to receive money for specific purposes. For example, the temple tax, payments for offerings, gifts for the temple, and so on. The Mishnah tells us that each of these 13s had a specific label on them. For example, one of them said, for the price of the two turtle doves or the two young pigeons. And you may remember when Jesus was born, Mary comes to the temple and she may well have just put some money into that chest to represent the required sacrifice for those who were poor. One important feature, and not many people appreciate this, is that they had a bronze funnel or trumpet to receive the coins into the chest. This meant that when the wealthy were emptying their great big bag of small change 
into the funnel, it would make a really loud noise. In other words, it was just a way of advertising to all around that someone was making an impressive offering. And in contrast, if the offering was only just one or two coins, it would make a tiny sound. In light of this system of giving, it's easy to see why Jesus taught about giving in private. He said this in the Sermon on the Mount. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. So we read in Mark 12:32, a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. The old translations refer to these coins as the widow's mites. The word mite is taken from the name of the smallest value coin used in Northern Europe when the first English Bibles were written, back in the Middle Ages. This coin mentioned in the Gospel was actually the smallest value coin in Judea, and even smaller than the, cheap, the smallest value Roman coin. It took two of them to make that smallest value Roman coin. Now, you've probably heard of a denarius, which was about a day's wage for a laborer. These two small coins that the widow put in the box were worth one sixty-fourth of the denarius. So about 10 minutes work for a laborer. Or the cost of one-eighth of a loaf of bread. This is what the widow had to live on. By normal standards, that is virtually insignificant. But Jesus perceived something that made it very different. When he saw the widow drop these two coins in the box, I think he knew from the tiny sound what those coins were. You know, you can, you can train your ear, you can tell. Though they made almost no sound on earth, these coins set off bells in heaven. It's as if the Lord said, stop what you're doing, look at this. And Jesus called his disciples over to explain why. He said, truly I tell you that this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. A great Bible teacher once pointed out, in God's sight, my giving is measured not so much by what I have given, but by how much I could have given and how much I had left over after I made my gift. Not by its size is my gift judged, but by how much of me there is in it. This teaching of Jesus turns upside down conventional ideas of generosity. But the challenge that we also face is not just our personal considerations of when, how much, and to whom we should give. 
Obviously, this teaching that Jesus gives means that God is, sees our hearts and knows how we're giving and knows that whether we're giving out of rote or out of passion for the, to reflect the character of God. God sees this. But there is another aspect which occurs when you are on the other side of the gift box. In other words, if you happen to be the one who is in receipt of these gifts, when, for example, you work for a charity or a church that is basically funded by people's giving. And you could put, it, you could put this another way by saying, how can a church treasurer get excited by a gift of a few pennies. I once uh, was a church treasurer for a number of years, and um, I don't have all the answers. Though one thing is clear enough, and that is that both the giver and the receiver should not focus so much on the gift, but on the one who breathes life into all creation the one who opens his hands and satisfies the desire of every living thing. Psalm 145. And thankfully, we have some good advice from Paul in his letter to the Philippians on how to think rightly when you are dependent on the gifts and the generosity of others. In chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul thanks the Philippians for sending him a gift. And this is while he is under house arrest in Rome. And Paul goes on to explain that he's learned to be content in all circumstances. And then he says this. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia... Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and I have more than enough. I'm amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That's how to look on being and receiving gifts from others. Paul is saying that the gifts that they sent were indeed a blessing to him, but much more important is the blessing that God bestows on the generous giver. So what's the unifying theme between these stories of two very different widows? The widow of Zarephath knew almost nothing about the God of Israel, but she received and obeyed the word of Elijah and trusted God that he was faithful to his word. 
And Jesus uses her and Elijah as an example, as I explained, for his disciples who were about to step out with the gospel of the kingdom. He told them to travel light, carry no money, give freely, rely on the generosity of others. This was their first lesson in mission. They had to trust God that he was indeed able to look after him, them. And the poor widow in the temple, who had lived in God's presence for many years and knew his ways, she still had to trust that God would not forsake her when she gave away all she had to live on. It's not a surprise and it's not complicated, but they all had to trust the goodness and faithfulness and generosity of God. And this is what Psalm 146 is all about. That is the psalm that we heard earlier on. It's the first of the last five psalms in the book of Psalms, which all start and end with hallelujah. So if you're looking to praise the Lord, this is the place in the book of Psalms to find out why, when, and how to praise the Lord. Psalm 146 makes it crystal clear who to trust and who to not trust. I'll read it through with a few comments and see how many lines you can say amen to as I read them out. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Now, here's who not to trust. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Now the foundation of why we should trust the Lord. Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. And now the results of trusting the Lord are these. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner. And he sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word speaks of your character so faithfully. Help us, Lord, to trust in the big things and the little things, things that trouble us when they shouldn't, 
Father, help us to look to you, to know that you are able, that you know and that you understand and that you care. You really do. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.